Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Georg Batzing is the head of the German Bishops' Conference. And on Monday, a tweet went out under the name of Bishop Batzing claiming that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI had died. Completely false. The 96-year-old Joseph Ratzinger is still living, retired Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. But that didn't stop some good people from rushing to be the first to inform everybody in their social circle that Benedict XVI had died. Tweets took off like wildfire. You had several media outlets picking up the story. And many producers, journalists, talking heads retweeted the story. And it's, it's bogus. So you have to ask, why? Why would someone create an intentional hoax, a false story, and then send it out to the unsuspecting? And it, it's in the same category of asking the question, why do adolescents like egging vehicles? Or why do vandals like spray-painting racial slurs on public buildings? Or why do bullies like harassing small people? Because they're perverted in their imagination, and they find pleasure in taking advantage of the unprotected, the vulnerable, the weak, the unsuspecting. And these are people who are bent in their moral imaginations. And they range from the naughty schoolboy to masters of financial fraud to Russian cyber agents who spread misinformation during campaign seasons. In this case, it was an Italian school teacher, Tommaso Di Benedetti, who apparently had too much time on his hands. Maybe COVID social restrictions had made him a little bit crazy. And he decided to get his jollies by sending out this false tweet on Benedict XVI's death. But what makes this even more perverse is that this plan was apparently in the works for nearly a year. According to the pillar, he created a Twitter account for Bishop uh, Georg Batzing, president of the German Bishops' Conference. The The account managed to amass thousands of followers. He didn't use the account but he built it up by strategically following the right people and allowing the Twitter algorithms to do the rest and collect followers. And then, Monday evening, he tweeted in German, English, and Spanish that Pope Emeritus Benedict had died. Now, after the story had spread, the hoaxer admitted the story was fake. He closed down his account, but he can easily set up another account and spread misinformation again. Now, everybody apparently knows that social media are the least verified media in the world. But that doesn't keep people from titillating themselves with strange claims about Bigfoot ordering someone to murder his hunting partner or or watching President Biden fall off his bike and saying, gee whiz, to almost any bizarre, unverifiable or verifiable but irrelevant claim. Social media reminds me of the old flea markets my dad would take me to. He walks you know, in zigzag paths, unmarked paths, fingering nuts and bolts and broken clocks, and he's regularly saying, don't go to this guy, go to that guy. But in social media, as in those old flea markets, unless you have somebody guiding you, there's nobody regulating the vendors or guaranteeing the integrity of the merchandise being sold. Social media doesn't come with warnings that if you consume too much of it, you might find yourself experiencing truth decay. The old gatekeepers are gone. And we've seen the democratizing of editorial opinion. Anyone can say pretty much anything about anybody and spread any mischievous claim that tickles their fancy. Flat earthers can now locate the minuscule percentage of people who hold to a flat earth. There's been a resurgence of interest in a geocentric rather than a heliocentric solar system. 
Clever memes are sent out that make the beautiful ugly and the ugly hilarious. Saints get turned into belly dancers, and low-level bureaucrats can be turned into courageous whistleblowers. The silver lining in all this, though, all this epistemic chaos, is that it may force many people to begin asking for themselves, how do I know what I know? What tests do I have to determine the true from the false, the right from the wrong, the fantasy from the reality? At the very least, this constant barrage of claims will force responsible people to be a bit skeptical of news stories that, well, coincide just too conveniently with one side or the other in a political conflict. For instance, did it strike anyone else that this terrible story of the 10-year-old Ohio girl who was raped and impregnated and who needed to run to Indiana to get an abortion in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Did that strike anybody else as perhaps just a bit too perfect for the pro-choice side of this debate? Now, sometimes coincidences do happen. Remember the movie The China Syndrome? You know, that was the story, a fictional story, about a meltdown at a nuclear power plant and the attempt to cover it up. It was released theatrically on March 16th of 1979, and just 12 days, it was released just 12 days before the Three Mile Island nuclear accident in Pennsylvania. I mean, this was a wowie howie head scratcher. I talk about timing the release of a movie to correspond to the horror it was depicting. It was perfect. Opponents of nuclear power had been given a tremendous boost by the conjoining of the movie and the actual meltdown. So I know there can be strange coincidences. But still, I was a little suspicious when I saw the story of this 10-year-old girl in Ohio. Ohio's law is that you can have no abortions after six weeks. Uh, That just went into effect. And it turns out that she was six weeks and three days. Three days too late. So she had to be spirited away across state lines to Indiana, where there were more liberal abortion laws. Even the president used the story. And he said, this isn't some imagined horror. It's already happening. Just last week it was reported that a 10-year-old girl was a rape victim, 10 years old, and she was forced to leave to travel out of state to Indiana to seek to terminate the pregnancy and maybe save her life. I remember saying to myself, well, it started. Get ready for the parade of horribles. Women dying from illegal abortions, children being forced to bring a baby to term, back alley butchers making bundles off butchering babies. But there was something a bit off about the story, and the Washington Post caught it. Other media outlets, too, caught it. This was a one-source story. It was not confirmed. And yet the story went viral, even into the talking points of the president. Now, I'm not saying the story isn't true. But according to the Washington Post, three days after the Dobbs decision, an Indianapolis obstetrician-gynecologist, Caitlin Bernard, who performs abortions, received a call from a child abuse doctor. Uh, in Ohio, who had a 10-year-old patient. Unable to obtain an abortion in Ohio, the girl was on her way to Indiana to Bernard's care. The only source cited by the Indianapolis Star was the abortionist herself. She did go on record, but there's no indication that the newspaper made any attempt to confirm her account. This is strange. This is strange journalistic behavior, given the controversy surrounding abortion in America. This is a time to be double-checking everything. On CNN's Sunday morning interview show, uh, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome, who's pro-life, said that the story was really tragic and wondered, though, why the attention wasn't on catching the rapist. 
alarm bells began to ring. Wait a minute. Ohio law requires physicians to report cases of known or suspected physical, sexual, or emotional abuse or neglect of a child. That's supposed to go right to the local child welfare or law enforcement agencies. That's mandatory reporting. Presumably, then, a criminal case gets opened up. But up to 4 o'clock today, when I went on the air, no one's been able to identify the supposedly mandated report of abuse. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's office was unaware of any specific case and admitted that the rape of a 10-year-old certainly should be reported. The Washington Post did spot checks of child service agencies in Ohio's largest cities, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, Dayton, Toledo. None of the officials there could, talk, could say that such a case had been reported. Again, I'm not denying the story. I'm not saying that this abortionist lied. I am saying that newspapers normally expect confirmation before running a controversial story. And I am amazed that there is apparently no search for the rapist. As the pro-life movement goes forward in post-Roe America, we're going to be up against big odds. Studies of political attitudes in the mainstream press over decades show us that roughly 80% of those in the so-called prestige media supported Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. Those of us who want to act in ways that respect and love both mother and child are not starting on an even playing field. The mainstream press is already preparing stories to trot out the hard cases with the intention of making abortion appear necessary. And we have to prepare ourselves to effectively respond to these hard cases. I'll certainly be discussing these matters regularly. But in the meantime, let me urge you to go to the Life Action, Live Action website. They've got an excellent collection of four-minute videos that deal with many of these issues. It's really worth taking time to familiarize yourself with these presentations. We're living in a soundbite social universe. So write those soundbites down. Uh, make sure they're on the tip of your tongue. Because while the social media world traffics in lies and half-truths, we've got to show that we're focused on reality. We're not escaping it, even very difficult and hard realities. Stephanie Reynolds was conceived in rape herself. And she says, My life is not worth less simply because of how I was conceived. I should not be put to death for the crimes of my father. Abortion does nothing to give the woman the healing she needs and deserves. It doesn't erase the rape. It doesn't undo the violence. Instead, it subjects the woman to another act of violence that can't be erased and undone and adds another victim to the trauma. Jennifer Christie was pregnant after a violent rape. And she tells the story of how the abortion industry encouraged her to abort. They said, if you don't abort, your child is going to be a constant reminder of your rape. For reasons that I don't know, Jennifer resisted their invitation to kill. And now she says, they were right. My son is a reminder that I was raped. But more importantly, he's the reminder that love is stronger than hate. We're going to have to be prepared with those stories at our fingertips, right on the tip of our tongue, you know, or as, as a friend of mine said, right at the point of our head, right? Uh, Dr. Kendrick, Kendrick Kolb is a neonatologist who insists that abortion is never medically necessary. Both patients can be treated. 
course, there are conditions in which treatment to save the mother will foreseeably kill the child, but the intention is not the death of the child, it's the life of the mother. We're going to have to be familiar with these uh, arguments again, and comfortable with them too, so that when we talk, we're demonstrating a grasp of reality, not just a grasp of political rhetoric. I'm Al Creston.